The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. Luke, chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. Hear the word of the Lord. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. And healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now speak to us from your word. This is your son, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see. May we appropriately identify with the unbelief of the disciples. And may we look to you in faith, for faith, to continue in faith all the way to the end. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple things in my head right now. One is to say... I had a title, and in fact, it's the title that's in the, on, the, on the website. It says, The Unbelief of the Disciples. And so at first reading, I was struck by the unbelief of the disciples in this passage. And I thought, that's the main thing we're going to focus on. And then after I studied it more and more and more, I think I'd rather title this sermon, The Forbearance of Christ. It screams to me, Let's see if you see it. My aim is that you and I would pray what the father of the demon-possessed boy prays in one of the parallel passages of this account. You know what it is? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So give me my outline. My outline is, just follows the narrative, the, the Father's prayer, point one. Point two, the disciples' unbelief. Point three, Christ's forbearance. Point four, Christ's compassion. And then I'm going to wind up the account as it's wound up in the text with Jesus' second 
foretelling of his suffering, and then we'll make some applications. And I'm going to invite you to pray in clusters at the end. So that's where we're going. I do have to say that I mean, this is another one of these accounts where Mark and Matthew have, have the same account. Uh, Mark's account is 16 verses long. So there's stuff there I'm going to pull in. Matthew's is seven verses long. Very helpful, complimentary stuff to give us the, the multi-lens view, perspective of this account, what's going on. And, and the other thing to say is in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this whole string of events hangs together. From the beginning of chapter 9, the sending out of the 12, to Peter's confession, you are the Christ, to Jesus foretelling his death, to the transfiguration, to this account. It's all kind of one thing. And uh, I hope to be communicating that as I go through it again this morning. So now, it's the day after the transfiguration of Jesus, which we looked at last week. And uh, Jesus, with Peter, John, and James, come down from the mountain, and they're, they're, they're met by a large crowd, verse 37 says. And that crowd is made up of not only just a bunch of people, but also the other nine disciples who had not been with Jesus when he was transfigured. And as Jesus and the three disciples approach the other nine in the crowd, Mark's account says this in Mark 9, 14. You might want to keep a piece of paper in Mark 9 and Matthew 17. So Mark's account says this. When Jesus and the three disciples approached the other nine in the crowd, they saw a great crowd around them, around the disciples, and scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, uh, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Jesus is here. And having observed this intense discussion that was going on as, as he approached, as Jesus approached, Jesus asked them, this is Mark 9, 16, what are you arguing about? Point number one, the Father's Prayer. That's when, according to Mark, one man in the crowd approached Jesus on his knees, greatly distressed. And then our text says in verse 38, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. What does that father's plea mean? I beg you to look at my son. It is a prayer. It's like approaching a doctor with your sick child and saying, would you look at my son? It's the word that Mary used in the Magnificat when she said, the Lord has looked on me with his, in my humble estate and he's blessed me. It means like to look with intent, look with kindness, look with favor. Look at my son, would you, Jesus? The, 
the list of symptoms. The convulsions are so severe as to shatter him. The demon scarcely ever leaves him alone. He's in constant suffering. And according to Mark, the father also said, this is Mark 9, 17, the demon makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And Matthew's account adds, he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. The father's only son has been in constant torment by a demon for many years in a most horrible and destructive, life-threatening manner. I push back right here. I couldn't help but think of the Davies. Their only son suffering from burns all over his body in South Africa, pleading with God, Lord, look, look, look on him. And the Beach family and others. I mean, maybe you've been in a situation, you know, it's one thing to be the sufferer and cry out. And this, the dynamic here is to be the loved one of the sufferer to cry out. I assume you've been there. Maybe it was your friend or your parent or a relative who was suffering. Or maybe you know, I think I can say, I can say this, like I know, as a parent. The intensity of your anguish on behalf of your suffering child, your son or your daughter, seemingly unbearable. And in a minute, you'd trade places with your child. They receive burn treatments or chemotherapy or or at another level maybe your child's gripped by mental illness or addictions gender confusion or destructive life choices and try as you might it seems like there's nothing you can do or say that makes a difference to relieve your suffering, to relieve their suffering. You've tried everything. I think that's where this man is. Worse, when you know, you see that they're in the, your child is in the grip of the devil, the demonic. So this father falls on his knees before Jesus and says, look. Because it's his last hope. He tried the disciples, point number two, the disciples' unbelief. The father explained his utter disappointment and despair. Verse 40, 
I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not heal the boy. They were not able, is the word. They weren't able to do it. Okay, you got to put this into context to understand the problem. Back at, at, in Luke 9, 1, Jesus had sent out the 12 disciples in this manner. He said, uh, he called, the text says, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And the 12 had gone out, and, uh, quote, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere, Luke 9, 6. They had believed Jesus' promise, went out with his power and authority, and they did what Jesus told them to do. They uh, had authority over demons. They cured diseases. And uh, yet here, with this boy, the disciples could not cast out the demon. Point three, Christ's forbearance. Now hearing this, Jesus is greatly troubled by the disciples' inability to do what he had empowered and told them to do. Namely, have authority over demons and heal. And he says in verse 41, Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Faithless and twisted. They're faithless. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking, yes, in a general way to the crowd, but specifically to the disciples. And not merely the ones who were unable to cast out the demon, I don't think, but to all of them. They're faithless. They do not believe God. They do not believe what Christ is or says, what he teaches, what he commands. They do not believe it, and they are twisted. They are bent out of shape. They, they go this way and that way and this way and that way. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? That's glorious. This is what came alive for me. Bear with you. How long am I to be with you and be long-suffering with you, be patient with you? It's the concept of patience. It is an aspect of the glory of God. That he, he bears with. Disciples, when they're crooked, 
and faithless. He bears with. Same word is used in Romans 2. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his, here it is, patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is kind, forbearing, and patient with sinners in order to lead sinners to repentance. And Ephesians 2 calls us to likewise show patience with one another, bearing with one another in love. Jesus answers, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now, surely when the disciples and the crowd heard these two words, faithless and twisted, their minds flashed back because they knew their Old Testament to the Song of Moses. This is in Deuteronomy 32. It's right at the end of the, of the wilderness wanderings. If you remember, God raised up Moses, and uh, through the process of the plagues, the ten plagues, God brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt after the Passover. Remember the Passover? People obeyed. They put blood on their doorposts as a sacrificial uh, shedding of blood for their own forgiveness, that the judgment that God ha- had on Egypt would not land on them. And they came out of Egypt following Moses in faith, and here's the crooked zigzagging. And you know what they did when God brought them out? Built a golden calf to worship. And grumbled and grumbled and grumbled against God. And even Moses himself sinned so that he couldn't enter the promised land. And and none of that generation could enter the promised land because of their sin. So faithless. They they believe and they don't believe. They they follow and they go after idols. They're crooked, perverse. In the Song of Moses, Moses praises God for his redemption and points out this faithlessness and crookedness of God's people. I'll just give you a sample from Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 32, Song of Moses. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, and all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright as he praised God. And then Moses speaks of the persistent faithlessness of God's people. Verse 5, they, God's people, have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. He goes on talking to the people now. Do you repay the Lord 
You foolish and senseless people, is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? And he says of the people, verse 20, they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. That's where the words come from. And so, what's Jesus saying to the disciples? And why is he saying this? I'll just give you a run through. I'm going to pull in one incident from chapter 8 and all the rest are in chapter 9 of Luke. In our text, the disciples were unable to cast out the boy's demon, disbelieving Christ's command and authority to do so. In chapter 8, in this storm, it was lack of faith that caused the disciples to be terrified. And I say that because when they were terrified and woke Jesus up, Jesus said, where is your faith? In chapter 9, verse 12, When the 5,000 people in the crowd needed to be fed, the proposal of the disciples was, let's send all these people away to to the villages and to to the little stores to get some food. And that was an evidence of faithlessness. They did not believe that through Christ they could feed 5,000 people, which they eventually did. In verse 22 of chapter 9, after Peter told Jesus, you are the Christ, he affirmed, Jesus is the Christ. What happened next? And Christ told Peter that the Christ must suffer and be killed in unbelief. Peter didn't believe him. He wanted to argue with him. In Verse 33 of chapter 9, when Jesus was transfigured, Peter, in unbelief, missed the whole point. Later, further down now in Luke chapter 9, verse 46, in unbelief, the disciples will squabble over who is the greatest, denying everything about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and And then in verse 49, they're selfishly attempting to control the success of the ministry of others where theirs has failed. And in verse 55, still in Luke 9, when a Samaritan village rejects Jesus, rather than do as Jesus told them when he sent out the 12 in the beginning of chapter 9, Shake the dust off your feet when they reject you and move on to the next town. In verse 55, when the Samaritan village rejects Jesus, James and John suggest that they call fire down from heaven to obliterate obliterate and flatten the whole town. Like Jonah, they delighted in God's judgment and despise that God could forgive sinners who repent and turn to him, which Nineveh did. And Jonah had to learn a lesson. What's the problem? 
Jesus doesn't say it's merely their fear. He doesn't say it's merely their lack of obedience. He doesn't say it's merely their ignorance. The heart of the problem that's trying Jesus' patience and his calling for his forbearance, his, his bearing with them, is that they were faithless and crooked. They didn't believe Though they had followed him for quite some time, they still lacked faith. Yeah, they believe here, and then they wouldn't believe here. They believe here, and they wouldn't believe here. That's what I see as the crookedness of it. Time and again, they, they turned out to be functional unbelievers. You know, you know what that is? When, I mean, it's a good phrase for when we as Christians who believe in Jesus sin and act as if we don't. Trusting in other promises to satisfy us. This is, I, do I have to say this? <laughs> this is not just the disciples' problem, right? We know this. Number four, po- point number four. Christ's compassion. After his rebuke, Jesus turned his attention to the distressed father and the tormented son. And and what he does here is not just for the good of the father and son. It's for the disciples too. Verse 41, Jesus says, Bring your son here. And as the father brought the boy, Mark's account says the demon interfered. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Mark 9, 20. Jesus asked, according to Mark's account, how long has this been happening? And the father answered, from childhood. And then the father says this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Mark 9, 22. And Jesus picks up on it right away. If you can, you hear it? The father's coming to Jesus. He's got nowhere else to go. And he speaks in this sort of wobbly sort of, well, if you can do something. And Jesus says, if you can, if you can, if. All things are possible for the one who believes. Mark 9, 23 is Jesus' response to which the father cries out in desperation. This is what I, one of the things I want us to pray at the end of the service. I believe Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Mark 9, 24. Then Jesus rebuked the spirit. Mark's account says that Jesus said, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And then the text goes on in Mark, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, the demon came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. 
But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And Jesus, according to our text in Luke, gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So, just another glimpse of the glory of God, the majesty of God, the divinity of Christ. God revealed to Peter, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, John, and James. And here again, the glory of Christ, the power of God on display in and through Jesus. The Matthew's account tells us what happened afterwards that Luke doesn't include. This is Matthew 17, 19. So there, Jesus is alone with the 12. And they ask him, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. And Mark's account adds, he said this to them, this kind of demon, so Matthew gives us one answer, because of your little faith, Mark adds this to that answer. You couldn't cast it out because this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but by prayer. So I put the two responses together. What was the disciples' problem? What was their inability? They could not cast out the demon because of their unbelief, and because of their unbelief, they did not pray. The problem was a prayerless, unbelieving lack of faith in Jesus. The account closes with Jesus foretelling his death for the second time. And it's striking to me that Jesus intentionally puts side by side his divine glory and his sufferings. You're the Christ, the Son of Man must be killed. At the transfiguration, his glory coming up, and they're talking about his exodus in Jerusalem. And here, glory and healing, this little boy. And Jesus says, or I'll read the account, verse 43 in Luke 9. All were astonished at the majesty of God, while, but, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be killed. Jesus keeps putting these two things together. But this did not sink into the disciples' comprehension. 
until after the resurrection. Verse 45, look at verse, chapter 9, verse 45. But they did not understand. It says it in four ways. They did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This was the hardest thing for the disciples to believe. That Jesus, the Christ, the coming king was coming and would be rejected and suffer and die for the sins of his people before rising to life and sitting on the glorious throne of God and returning again in all his glory. They just didn't have the long view in mind. They, could, they just didn't understand it. You can't blame them. Luke 18 says similarly. You know, what screams out in verse 45 is, it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Who concealed it? It would be God. Luke 18 says similarly, when Jesus foretells his death for the third time, this is in Luke 18, 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So, okay. <laughs> I said we're going to close in clusters of prayer. You know how we do this? Just get in a cluster of three or four people around you and just pray. And I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five things to pray about by way of application and closing, sewing up this text. It's all about faith. Number one, saving faith is a gift. By grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. Saving faith is a gift. If you don't believe in Jesus, ask God for faith. It's a gift. He gives it by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. He gives the gift of faith to believe. Saving faith is a gift. So that's point number one. So thank God. If you believe in Jesus, thank God for the gift of faith. If, like Peter, you confess Jesus is the Christ, you confess that Jesus is Lord, thank God for the gift of faith. I mean, your your willful embrace of Jesus, your confession of Jesus, your commitment to Jesus, your resolve to follow Jesus, your, your desire to read the Bible and follow after him are not the cause of your faith. They're the fruit of it. They're the result. Saving faith is a gift. Point number one. So when you gather for prayer, thank God for the gift of faith if you have it. If you don't, Pray for the gift to believe that God is who he says he is and Jesus is who he says he is and he's true to his promises of all that he promises to do for you in the gospel. Number two, not only is faith a gift, but the measure of your faith is a gift from God. I get this from Romans 12, 3. 
The context is spiritual gifts. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you to think of himself, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. And then he adds this clause. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Huh. So you might have this much faith and you might have this much faith. Paul says, don't be boastful about this. Think of yourself as sober judgment, but each of you has a measure of faith as God has assigned, as a gift. So, you know, that the... The the plain meaning of Christ foretelling his suffering and death was concealed from the disciples, hidden from them, was in God's sovereign grace, the appointment of their faith. Like, I won't give you disciples the grace to believe and understand that yet but I will give it to you after the resurrection of Jesus. It'll be crystal clear, and they'll spend the rest of their lives telling the world of Christ's suffering and death and resurrection. So point number two is not only is your faith a gift, but the measure of your faith is a gift. And so I would say praise God for the measure of your faith that he's given you because don't begrudge him because mustard seed faith moves mountains. Why? Because the power of faith isn't in the size. It's in the one, the God to whom we trust. Point number three. Pray for more faith. Pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, give me more faith. Save me from my unbelief. Give me more faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm them. I'm the disciples. I'm the the man, the desperate man. If you can. If. Pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then number four, pray that Christ intercede for you. This is um, after Jesus told Simon he was going to betray him, or excuse me, deny him. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Ask Jesus to pray for your faith like you prayed for Peter, that your faith not fail. Number five, pray for this church that we would be a community in which your faith is strengthened. 
You know, the pastor's letter that comes out every week, when, when I write it, I always sign it for the advancement and joy of your faith from Philippians 1.25. Why? Because I want all that I do as pastor, all that we do as elders, pastors, staff, to be for the advancement and joy of your faith. Why do I say it that way? I can say a lot of things here. Everything apart from faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We're about worshiping God by faith in Christ. We're about belonging to Christ and belonging to one another by faith. We're about growing in the grace and knowledge of God, growing in holiness and growing in our sanctification by faith. We're about serving one another in love by faith. We're about going to the neighborhoods and the nations by faith. (laughs) Because it's only by faith that any and all of what we do glorifies God. So, let me me pray. And then uh, when I finish, just gather in little clusters for a few minutes and pray Pray for faith. I'll I'll review it. Praise God for the gift of saving faith. Praise God for the measure of faith he's given. Ask God for more faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Ask Christ to intercede for your faith, to keep your faith, preserve your faith, keep you believing. And lastly, pray for this church to be a, a people of faith. So, Lord Jesus... We come before you now in faith. And I do pray if any here do not have faith, do not believe in you, that you grant them faith by the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. And for those of us who do believe, we thank you for the gift of faith that flesh and blood didn't reveal it to us, but you did, that Jesus is the Christ and our Lord. And we confess that we, too, like the disciples, are at times unbelieving and crooked, zigzag, in and out of faith. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. And I do thank you so much for your bearing with, for your reaching out your hand to Peter and picking him up on the transfiguration after he missed it all. And for healing the the demon-possessed boy despite the wavering faith of his father. We believe, help our unbelief and grant us faith to follow you and obey you and trust you and be fearless and unashamed and unwavering as we live out our lives in this faithless and crooked generation. Now, hear our prayers as we gather in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. 
Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.